a minister announced that the topic of his sermon would be heaven. He received a letter from an old man that was very ill. The letter, a beautiful expression of faith, read in part, Next Sunday you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me. But the donor purchased it at a tremendous sacrifice to himself. I am not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It is not a vacant lot. I have been sending material out of which the greatest builder of the universe has been preparing a mansion for me. Termites can never undermine its foundations. They rest upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it, nor floods wash it away. No locks nor bolts will ever be placed upon its doors, for no vicious person can enter that land. There's a valley of deep shadows between the place where I now live and that to which I shall journey in a short time. I cannot reach my home in that city of God unless I pass through that valley. But I'm not afraid. Because the best friend I ever had went through that valley long ago and drove away all the gloom. He has stuck by me constantly since we first met 55 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form, never to forsake me, nor to leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of the shadows. I shall not lose my way ever. I hope to hear your sermon, but I have no assurance that I will do so. My ticket to heaven has no date on it and no return coupon, no baggage permit. I may not be here while you are talking Sunday, but I do hope to meet you there someday. One writer said, if we could see heaven for just ten seconds, earth would no longer be a problem. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Wherefore, we faint not, But though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for the moment, worketh for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Tonight, as we develop the subject of heaven, I want to ask and answer three questions. In the first place tonight, what is heaven? And I want to suggest an answer to that question. First of all, heaven is a fact. The sad thing is there are a lot of people today and have been through the years who do not believe that heaven is a place of reality. In fact, back in 1877, a man by the name of F.W. Farah released a little book entitled Eternal Hope. And in that book, he called heaven a state rather than a place. Something to be, he said, 
rather than some place to go. Bishop Ferrer could not have been more wrong. A new age religion, which at the moment is being heavily promoted by Oprah Winfrey, calls heaven a, a not a location, but an inner realm of consciousness. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you tonight that the Bible teaches heaven is a fact. And the pictures of heaven in the Bible show it is a fact. For example, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, when John wrote to the church of Ephesus, he talked about the paradise of God. Now the paradise of God, of Revelation 2 and 7, pictures the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and verse 8. For there John says there is the tree of life, and the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. And I say to you tonight, when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the Garden of Eden is a place. In the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 18, one of the things that Paul was going to accomplish through the preaching of the gospel was to allow the Gentiles to enjoy that inheritance that individuals who obey the gospel are going to receive. Now that inheritance, as per Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, pictures the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan was a place. It was a fact. It was real. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, John said there is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem pictures the city of Jerusalem. And tonight no one would deny that Jerusalem is a fact. And so I suggest to you that heaven is a fact. In fact, it is described as a place. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus said, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places, literally, many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. A place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now as we take our Bibles from the standpoint of the idea of heaven being a place, the Bible gives us an idea of what kind of place it really is. The Bible says heaven is a place of rest. In the book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, John wrote, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yea, from henceforth forever, saith the Spirit. For they shall rest from their labors, for their works do follow them. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 11, the Hebrews writer wrote, Strive to enter into that rest. And thus we sing, O land of rest, for thee I sigh, when will that moment come? When I shall lay my armor by and dwell with thee at home. I wandered from the city with its noise and dusty streets 
and walked out in the country where the air was pure and sweet. It seemed that in an instant the scene changed to long ago, and I, a little child again, was following in the row, as I often did behind my dad, we must hold the corn just so. And if we did, dad always said, you may rest at the end of the row. I see it now, that same old field, dad sweating at the plow. We children following with our hoes for him to show us how. And he always said, now do it right and cut the weeds as you go. And if we did what father said, we could rest at the end of the row. The years have flown, we children grown, and father is here no more. But now I gaze on that field of corn like we hold in days of yore and compare this life to that field of corn as we toil here below. For Father has said, if we do our work right, we shall rest at the end of the road. Heaven is a place of rest. The Bible says heaven is a place of reaping. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, three times happy. For great is your reward which is in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. In the book of Matthew, chapter 6 and verse 20, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So therefore, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not dig through, literally, and steal. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and in verse 9, Paul said, Be not weary in well-doing, For in due season ye shall reap, if you faint not. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 4, Peter said, We are striving for an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, which fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. After the judgment scene of Revelation 20, it's interesting that in Revelation 21 and 22, The scene moves to heaven. Heaven is a place of reaping. The Bible says heaven is a place of rejoicing. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, and in verse 21, the man who had doubled his talent was told to enter into the joy of thy Lord. A place of rejoicing. The psalmist said in Psalm 1611, At thy right hand there are joy forevermore, pleasures in the presence of Jehovah God. Enter into that place of rejoicing. The music of heaven shows that it's a place of rejoicing. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and in verse 9, it is interesting that as John writes, he mentions the music of heaven. Listen to what he says. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and didst purchase unto God with thy blood of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
and madest them unto our God a kingdom and priests, and they reign upon the earth. You turn a few chapters to Revelation chapter 14, and you look at verse 3, and there again you see the scene as it unfolds. They sing, as it were, a new song before the throne. I often wonder as I stand during an invitation song, for example, or if I'm seated on the rostrum during a song service, and I survey people who never open their mouths, and I wonder, how are you preparing for heaven? And thus we sing, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. You see, there will be no bad days or blue Mondays in heaven. Heaven is a place of rejoicing. The Bible says heaven is a place of responsibility. There are two things, especially, that we do here on this earth as children of God that shall in some form continue in heaven. The first is worship. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, and in verse 11, it's interesting that here are individuals that are bowing down before God, and they are worshiping Him, and they say, Worthy art thou, and you are worthy because of all you have done. If my wife had been able to be with me this week, I honestly could say without any hesitation, I cannot think of any place I'd rather be on the face of this earth than with you good people in worship to God. Worship is an absolute pleasure. And I have thought of individuals, a gospel preacher in Chattanooga, Tennessee, being introduced to preach and dying, sitting in the chair before he preached. I couldn't think of a better way to go. I couldn't think of a better place from which to go than a worship service of our Lord. And then we're going to serve Him. It's interesting that the Bible has always made a distinction between worship and service. And it's not true that everything one does is worship, but everything one does ought to be in service to God. And in Revelation chapter 22 and in verse 3, John recorded this interesting statement. His servants, bond slaves there, shall serve him. Service. On Wednesday nights, sometimes he was the only little boy there. And instead of allowing him to lie down on the pew and go to sleep or doodle and color and play, a godly woman in that congregation would take him into one of the two classrooms connected to that church house and teach him with modeling clay, if any of you are old enough to remember that, about the characters of the Bible, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, the apostles about Jesus and Paul and Peter. And when that class time was over, they would reassemble in the auditorium and her husband would stand right there. And that little boy would stand right beside him. And her husband would say, number 40. And that little boy would say, number 40. 
Number 40 in that old songbook was to the work, to the work. We are servants of God. Heaven is a place of responsibility. The Bible says heaven is a place of reunion. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse 23, David's baby is going to die as a result of the consequences of David's sin. And God had told David that. The baby shall die. And that baby was stricken. And David wouldn't eat. And he wouldn't take care of himself. And he wouldn't listen to soothing music. And the baby died. And all of a sudden, David begins to take care of himself. He calls for food. He's willing to hear the soothing strains of the music. He's willing then to resume his normal activities. And his servants are baffled. They say, explain it to us. While the baby was sick, you would do none of these things. But now the baby's dead and you are going about your normal activity. And David made this statement. How many times have we used it at a graveside? I cannot bring him back to me. But I can go where he is. In the book of Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus pictured it as folks coming from the east and the west and the north and the south and sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. It's the fact that heaven is a place of reunion that allowed us to stand on a hillside in West Tennessee and plant beneath the sod that little body in which our first grandchild had lived five days. I can go where she is. One writer said, we're not homesick. We have too much to live with and not enough to live for. And then he made this observation. If everything we want is here, it is hard to leave. And thus we sing, Loved ones are waiting and watching my coming. Heaven holds all to me. Heaven is a fact. In answer to the question, what is heaven? The Bible says heaven is final. Heaven is eternal security. In Matthew 25 and 46, Jesus said, The righteous shall go away into age, never-ending life, everlasting life. In Romans 6 and 23, the free gift of God is eternal, never-ending life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Hebrews 11, verse 10 and verses 13 to 16, it is said of Abraham and those with him that they looked for a city whose builder and maker or ruler is God. I cannot tonight explain to us eternity. We're in it. God put time in eternity. And you and I deal with time, and there will be a time when time is no more, and eternity will keep going. Our songs confuse us. 
Our songs talk about spending eternity. You'll never spend it. Our songs talk about living throughout eternity. Eternity has no out to it. We're going to live in eternity. One little girl may help us to get a glimpse. She said, I want a peppermint stick with just one end. That is eternity. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17, Paul said, So shall we ever be with the Lord. Heaven is final. In answer to the question, what is heaven? The Bible says heaven is freedom. I like to call it sometimes the city of no mores. For example, the Bible says there will be no more sin. In Matthew 5 and 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In 2 Peter 3 and 13, we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. In Revelation 21, 27 and 22, 15, we learn that everything mean and cruel and defiling and sinful is going to be on the outside, not on the inside. Of the city of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we vex our very souls with the ugliness of sin around us every day. We deal with its language. We deal with its images. We deal with its vulgarities. We deal with all of everything the devil can throw together and throw at us. And oh, what a blessing to think I can go to the city where all of that is no more. There will be no more sickness and sorrow. Revelation 21 and 4, Jesus says that the Lamb will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No sickness, no sorrow. You ever thought about that? Most of us have sat at the sick bed and maybe later the death bed of people whom we held dear. And because we knew their lifestyle, as far as we could tell, they'd be better off to go home and be with the Lord. I'd finished a gospel meeting in March of this year. On Thursday morning, I'd just pulled out onto the four-lane on my way home in a three-hour drive, and my telephone rang. My wife said, I believe your mama has had a stroke. And I've called the ambulance. And they took her then to the hospital. And on the way home, back and forth, communicating, she had had a living will, don't want to be on life support, don't want to be lingering when it's time to go home. The ambulance attendants didn't know that, and their job is to save lives. So they had intubated her. And I'm on the phone with the emergency room doctor. And he says, we're just going to leave everything like it is until you get here. Well, finally, I got there. And I said, Mom, I'm here. We're going to do what's best. And I said to the doctors, take that tube out of her. Saturday night, I left. I said, Mom, I'm going to preach in the morning. Go and try to. 
Go on home if you're ready. About three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. She's gone home. I miss her dearly. I wouldn't have her back here one second. She's gone home to the city of no mores. One gospel preacher wrote about his son. And he said when our son was a lad of two, he became a victim of polio. He was sentenced, he said, to braces, corsets, crutches, and a wheelchair. And he said when polio struck, this little two-year-old launched a counterattack of his own. He said he began to sing, and he's been singing ever since. And he said it was not so bad until he began to make up his own songs. And he said he even composed his own tunes. And he said one day when he was about five, he was lying on the, cha- on the couch, and he began to sing a new song. When I get to heaven, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run up the stairs. I'm going to run down the stairs. He said, then he paused. Any cripple boys in heaven dead? Nope, was my casual reassurance. And he said it was then that I heard him sigh. Boy, I wish I could hurry up and go there. Joy Hagstrom said it this way. One day I saw a cripple boy watch children playing ball. I had to blink the tears away in answer to his call. Hey, mister, if you've got the time, would you sit down and talk? I'd like to run and play with them, but I just can't walk. I'd like to chase that ball a mile or climb that hollow tree or swim down in the swimming hole or take a hike, you see. Well, one day I'll do those things without a thought or care. Mister, when I get up to heaven, there ain't no cripples there. Truly there will be. No tears in heaven. And thus we sing. Why should I long for this world and its sorrows when in that home over the sea millions are singing that wonderful story? Heaven holds all to me. Who will go to heaven? Do you mean you're going to be so presumptuous tonight as to decide Who goes to heaven? Absolutely not. God's already decided that. And He has given us the answer to that question in His book. For example, He said, children of God will go to heaven. In Hebrews 4 and verse 3, we are reminded that the children are the individuals who are to seek to enter into that rest. In Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Paul said, you are all the sons of God, or children of God, depending on your translation, through literally the faith, the scheme of revelation that has been delivered, which is in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Colossians 3 and verse 1, and chapter 3 ought never been divided there, it ties back into chapter 2, beginning about verse 12, in those who've been baptized into Christ. So Paul says, If you then were buried with Him, with Christ, seek the things which are above, because now you've been risen with Him. So if you've then be risen with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. And then he made this statement. Set your mind, King James affection, set your mind on things above, not 
on things of this earth. If you're a child of God tonight and you die, you're better off than the rest of us. And I have said to individuals over and over and over, at the death of a loved one, whom as far as we know died faithful to God, he, she, is better off than we are, though we miss them terribly. Children of God will go to heaven. Laborers will go to heaven. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, Paul said, Wherefore? Now, boys and girls, that's a conclusion word. So you need to go back and read the entire chapter where he's dealing with the resurrection from the dead. And he's basing a case on the fact, since it is the case Jesus was raised from the dead, and since it is the case that we shall be raised from the dead, wherefore, as a result of that, you be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding, that word means overflowing, in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When Paul wrote his own epitaph in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he said, I've kept the faith, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course. Paul, what are you telling me? I've been faithful to the faith. I've been faithful in the fight. And I've been faithful to the finish. I'm a worker. In Revelation 14, 13, you remember John said, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, forever saith the Spirit. For they shall rest from their labors. You remember in Revelation 20 and 12, at the great white throne judgment seat, the books are open, and the dead are judged out of the things that are written in the books according to their works. Laborers are going to heaven. Those who obey the gospel and live faithfully will go to heaven. You see, one must obey the gospel because that is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 Those who do not obey the gospel shall suffer everlasting destruction, even eternal separation from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 Those who have not obeyed the gospel will here depart from me. I never knew you, ye that work iniquity tied in with the paragraph on false teachers in Matthew 7, 15 through 27. In 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, to those of us who may be, as they were, going through a fiery trial that's going to prove their faith, there is that inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away because of our obedience to what we know about Jesus Christ. But obeying the gospel is not the end of it. When one has obeyed the gospel plan of salvation, ladies and gentlemen, that's not an invitation to come on over and sit on the pew with us. That's an invitation to walk out of the baptistry and walk the Christian life. To be faithful. First Peter 2 and 2, as a newborn babe, just obeyed the gospel. Earnestly desire... Long for 
the sincere milk of the word, that, that's that little three-letter word, Enoch, in order that ye may grow thereby unto salvation. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11, as you are living the Christian life, you're adding your diligence. And to that diligence, you're supplying faith and virtue and self-control and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And as these things are in you and abound, overflow, they make you to be not barren or unfruitful in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ, but unto you shall richly be supplied an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. And I love the way Moffat captured the continuous tense of the verb in Second Peter 3.18 when he translated, Go on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, I must remain faithful unto the end. In Revelation 2 and 10, John wrote to Smyrna, and I tell our folks at home every time I read this, now that's in Asia Minor, but he was writing you too, Be thou faithful, the literal word is, until death, and ye shall receive the crown of life. But what's the context there? A context of martyrdom. So the idea is, be faithful unto death, or that is, into death, to the point you would die for Christianity. And that's what they were doing in Revelation 2.10. So you be faithful until you die on this earth, or to the point you die because you put your life on the line to be a Christian. And if you'll do that, you will go to heaven. Those whose names are written in the book of life will go to heaven. In Luke 10 and verse 20, Jesus said to the disciples who were so happy they had the miraculous power, and I may paraphrase here, that's nothing to be rejoicing over. You rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In Philippians 4 and verse 3, when Paul wrote to straighten out that problem with two women, Euodia and Syntyche, He talked about others who are faithful, whose names are recorded in heaven. In Hebrews 12 and verse 23, the Hebrews writer talked about the church of the firstborn ones, whose names are written in heaven. In Revelation 21 and verse 27, John wrote with caution, Don't you reduce or take away from this book of the prophecy Or God will take your name out of His book of life. Oh, you want your name written in heaven. Your your name may not appear down here in this world's hall of fame. In fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The Oscars here may pass you by and neon lights of blue. But if you love and serve the Lord, then I have news for you. This hall of fame is only good as long as time shall be. But keep in mind God's hall of fame is for eternity. To have your name inscribed up there is greater, yes, by far, than all the halls of fame down here and every man-made star. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall, and that's how long you last. But God... He never does forget. And in His Hall of Fame, by just obedient faith in His Son, inscribed, you will find your name. 
I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name, however small, that's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall for every famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. Those whose names are in the book of life will go to heaven. And then tonight, how may I go to heaven? You see, I know what it is, and I know who's going to be there. But if I don't do something about it, this lesson has helped me not at all. There are three steps one must take in order to go to heaven. I freely admit to you tonight that the first step may be the hardest thing you ever do, ever, underscore, put an asterisk, ever do on this earth. That is the step out of self. I have more problems with me than I do anybody else. In fact, in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Look at where Jesus started. Let him deny himself. That means I'm going to turn away from all the sinful pleasures on earth that tell me to indulge myself. Galatians 5 and 24 Paul said, they that are Christ have put to death these fleshly lusts and passions that come from this earth. And when I've denied myself, the obvious thing to do is give myself to the Lord. That was the attitude of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5, where Paul said first they gave themselves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. That means in the watery grave of baptism, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I have changed my mind about living in sin on purpose. And thus I come to confess, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Having then made that decision, I'm ready to take the second step, the step into Christ having put to death and ready now to bury the old man of sin, Colossians 3, 5-17, I am buried with him in the waters of baptism in order that his blood may wash away my sin. Acts 22, verse 16. I'll rise out of that watery grave to walk a new life. That's a new lifestyle. Romans 6 And verse 4. And I will, to the very best of my ability, now that I'm in the light, as He is in the light, 1 John 1, 5, I will keep on walking in the light, as He is in the light, and I will keep on having fellowship with Him. That's vertical there, us and God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, will keep on cleansing me from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 and verse 7. That's called faithfulness. And then from the step into Christ, that third step is easy. The step into heaven. In Hebrews 9 and 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. In 1 John 3 and 2, we don't know what we shall be, but we know that when we see Him, we shall be as He is. We have judgment pictured all wrong, in my opinion. We picture judgment like a courtroom on earth. 
And somehow we get the mistaken idea that we're going to be sitting there with Jesus as our defense attorney and the devil as, our, as the prosecutor, and we're going to hold our breath that somehow God the jury finds out that we've done one more good thing than we have bad thing, so we won't go to hell. I want to be very careful here. When I draw my last breath, or if I'm rendered mentally incapable, of responding. Or if I die having not reached the age of accountability, whatever the case may be, when I draw my last breath, my destiny is decided. Judgment will only be a recognition of what I decided in my response to Jesus Christ while I was here on this earth. Are you nearer heaven today than you were yesterday? There's a preacher across the line over here in Jasper, Alabama, who was known as Gus Nichols. Don't know if you ever knew of Brother Gus or not. He preached at the Jasper Church for over 35 years. Preached six years at the Millport Church. Brother Nichols began to have some crippling strokes before he died. W.A. Black was preaching at Millport. And one day, Brother Nichols said to Sister Nichols, I want you to call Brother and Sister Black and have them come to lunch. Brother Gus's son, Flavel, was there. And after lunch, Brother Gus asked that the men go into another room. And after they had departed, Brother Gus asked his son, Flavel, and W.A. Black to read every passage in the Bible that spoke of heaven. They read and talked only about heaven for more than three hours. And when they had finished, Brother Gus said this, I am convinced that we are not talking to dying people enough about heaven. Does heaven hold all to you. It's only a step while we stand in encourage.